Welcome back to Bible time, 1 Thessalonians 5.11, wherefore comfort yourselves together and edify one another even as ye do. This is the final conclusion of the end times doctrinal discourse God has included in the book of 1 Thessalonians. Definitely not the last thing God has to say about end times in the Bible, but this closes up the direct comments on end times Um, wraps them up here in the book of 1 Thessalonians, and it ends here where chapter 4 ended. It ends with this concept of comfort and edification. Chapter 4, verse 18 says, Wherefore, comfort one another with these words. Chapter 5, verse 11 says, Wherefore, comfort yourselves together and edify one another, even as also ye do. Let's pray. Father, in Jesus' name, we pray that you would Comfort us and edify us through your word today. Help us to understand your word and to rightly divide your word. In Jesus' name, amen. Now, in the church of God, we have schisms. We have doubtful disputations, everybody arguing about their opinion about end times. We have envyings, strifes, railings, malice, ill will, bad attitudes resulting from studies of what the Bible says about end times. That's a problem. That is not God's will. That is carnality. God wants you to know. We have, we've studied that and we've said that. God wants you to know. He wants you to know if you're saved. That's why in 1 John he says, These things are written that you might know that you have eternal life. God wants you to know if you're saved. God wants you to know who he is. God wants you to understand his will, that you may prove what is that good and acceptable and perfect will of God. In Romans 12, at the start of that chapter, uh, there's many things that God wants you to know. And there's many things that God leaves in the dark. I was reading about a missionary to the Buddhists of Mongol and how of Mongolia and how they would brag that their spiritual books would fill an entire ox caravan. A large room could be filled up with the books that make up their Bible. A church building could be filled up with the books that they call their Bible. And then the other books that they consider sacred writings that accompany the Bible. Instead of 66 little bitty books that fit in one volume for the Christian word of God, for the word of Jesus Christ, the creator of the heaven and the earth, the Buddhists follow the words of men that would make up some several hundred volumes, several Several hundred books as big as the book of the Bible. Look up here, right here. Several hundred books as big as the book that we call the Bible. And that's what they call their Bible and that's what they call their writings. And they scoff at a gospel and at a religion that is based off of a book so small as our book. And they say, that's pretty stupid. Why would you believe that little bitty book when we have all these great big books to believe? Is bigger always better? Well, with all due respect, you can have the biggest pile of trash in the world and it's still trash. No matter how big your trash heap is, it doesn't make it valuable. By the way, would you rather have a giant tinfoil wedding ring that's as big as your groom's head on your wedding day, or would you rather have a diamond the size of a pinhead? Which would you have? 
And here is a decent analogy, because instead of the cheap tin foil of man's religion and man's ideas and man's philosophy that make up all the volumes of Buddhistic thought, God himself has spoken to us, and God has given us his word, a perfect diamond. And furthermore, it's not even a diamond in the rough. It's a diamond that God smoothed and polished and cut many times until every facet was perfect, and he set it in settings of silver and gold. And the Bible says, as silver purified in a furnace of earth, seven times is what God's word is like, perfect and pure and preserved. And here we have the actual word of God. But whenever you're reading the word of God, it doesn't have all the details. It's been meticulously, scientifically, carefully, exactly, and purposefully cut. God has cut whole sections out. There's things that you say, well, then what happened? And there's nothing else there. There's some people in the Bible that get two or three verses. Think about Jabez out in the Old Testament. Everybody got um, kind of wild about the prayer of Jabez across America, and it's a beautiful prayer, and it's a great blessing in the Bible, but he gets two or three verses, and his whole story's done. It doesn't tell you anything else. There's huge amounts of the scripture that leave questions unsaid. John said, as he concluded the gospel of John, go there and look at the last chapter and look at what John said about the multitude of books that could have been written, but God chose not to have them written. Look at verse 25 of John 21. And there are also many other things which Jesus did, the which... If they should be written, everyone, I suppose that even the world itself could not contain the books that should be written. Amen. Good luck with your ox carts. Even the world itself could not contain the books that should be written. The Bible is not small because there's so little to say. The Bible is small in size because God is an infinite God and God in his infinite and sovereign wisdom chose to give us exactly what he gave us. He began it with Genesis. He closed it with Revelation 66 and only 66 perfectly preserved books of the Bible make up the canon of God's word holy and and inspired and preserved perfectly for us today. And God did it that way so that you could know what you need to know well. Instead of having a ton of information that you don't know very well at all, God gave you a little bit of information that he wants you to know very, very well. So here we have the 66 books of the Bible. And in these 66 books of the Bible, God gives us very little about the end times comparatively to what what someone might think. If you took every direct reference to the end times in the Bible and and condensed them down into a volume, it would not make a very big book. The way my pages are laid out in this particular edition of the Authorized Version Bible, um, the seventh revision of the 1611, um, done in England, mostly by William Tyndale, and works that were built on the works of men like John Wycliffe. Uh, this work here is about 2,000 pages long because it has quite a lot of marginal space for notes. It's called a note taker's edition. Um, and I'll just throw a little ad out here for those of you that want nice Bibles. Look up Church Bible pl- Publishers. Publishers, I think they're in Longview, Texas, right? And they're a local church 
that prints and binds the Bibles themselves. And um, what a blessing that is. I really like the Bibles. In any case, that's the one that I've got. They've got this note taker's Bible. It has really wide note spot, note sections along the sides and um, gives you a single column of text and then a column that's a little smaller for notes. And I like that for keeping my notes and keeping track of my thoughts as I'm studying the Word of God. In this edition, there's 2,000 pages. So in about a 2,000 page Bible, if 500 pages were about directly about the end times, not indirectly, directly. And I doubt that would be the case to be directly referencing the end times, not just in types and figures. But if 500 of those pages directly reference the end times, 500 is not that big of a book. 500 is a common size of a book to talk about one person's life. And we're dealing with the end times of the whole universe, of the whole race of man. This Bible talks about history. It's not a history book, but it is more accurate than any history book because it's God's word. But here in this book that has history, it has poetry, it has prophecy, it has doctrine and edification and reproof and rebukes and exhortations in this book of God that he's given us, God has given us very specific, but very limited information about the end times. This requires that we have great humility when we come to the Bible and when we deal with matters that God doesn't say much about. If you know more than the Bible about something, you are probably wrong. As soon as you depart from the Bible, your whatever proof you're using, whatever author you're reading after becomes shadier and shakier the further he gets from the Bible. The more you stray into philosophy and theology and all these other ideas of man, the less of a sure footing you have and the more you're likely to wander into error and possibly heresy. The Bible is very limited by God purposefully, but but listen to me today, what the Bible says, the Bible says, and what God says in the Bible, God says, and what God says, God means, and what God means, God will do, and God will keep, God will keep his word, and every word of God is pure. He is a shield to them that put their trust in him. In every case, when God speaks of something, God speaks very, very clearly on a basic level. And then God allows other information to be included that gives you more depth, but the more detail you get into, for example, on the Trinity, the Godhead, how that God the Father, God the Word, and God the Holy Ghost are one, the more detail you get into, the fuzzier it gets. How do you explain it? It gets it gets harder to really comprehend and grasp the deeper you get into it. The depth of this book is infinite. Reading the Bible is like getting a telescope out and pointing it at the sky full of stars. As you study, the longer you study, the longer you stare into that telescope in the darkness, the darker the night gets, the clearer your picture is, the more stars you see. But 
you still see the same stars. It doesn't change what you already saw, what is already true. And a lot of people come to the Bible and they think that if you study the Bible, that you're, it's like you're staring into this book and it will change and morph as you study it so that it no longer means what it originally meant. Nothing could be further from the truth. God does this just like staring into the night sky. You can see Orion with the naked eye. You can see the Big Dipper in some places. You can see these different constellations, the Northern Star. You can see these things and you can see them clearly. And no matter how big of a telescope you get, follow this, no matter how big of a telescope you get and how deep you look into space, Orion is still Orion. Orion does not change its constellational position because you are looking further into space. Instead, you see more detail around Orion, behind Orion, in the middle of the area that you would consider part of Orion. Now, all of a sudden, you can see stars that you never saw before, but they still have their same locations and areas and movements. Those are still bounded by the same laws that governed the stars you could see without a telescope. Do you hear me? Is this clicking today? I hope this is clicking. I hope you're getting this. When you look into the Bible, when we look into Revelation and the end times, we're, we're looking at the wrapping up of end times discussion here in 1 Thessalonians chapter 5. We'll get into it more, Lord willing, for in 2 Thessalonians. And as we go on through the Bible, um, there's many, many, many places in the Bible that deal with the end times. As you're studying the Bible and you're studying end times events and what God is doing, there is a framework of very clear truth in the Bible that does not change. No matter how much revelation you think you got from God about end times, if it doesn't fit within the clear framework of what God has clearly and emphatically stated in his word, then you are wrong. Capital W, wrong. God gives us things that are very clear and very sure, and we must start from those points as we study his word and as we study truth. If instead you start from some scholastic theologian's perspective, you'll be way out there in some kind of alternate reality, having left all kinds of bounds, all kinds of points of measurement, and you'll have some kind of weird freakish ideas about the future future and about what God says. And next thing you know, you'll start taking this verse and that verse and saying, see, 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 look, that verse says this and misapplying and mis um, contextualizing scripture, whether contextualizing it away or taking it out of its context. And pretty soon you will have a totally misformed uh, um, idea of what the Bible says. Now this comes from pride. You see, any little child can look up at the sky and with a little bit of help, they can pick out the Big Dipper. In most nights, even when few stars are visible, you can see what we call here in the Western Hemisphere, in the north northern part of the Western Hemisphere, uh, we can see what we call the Big Dipper most nights of the year. And most children learn to pick it out pretty quick if they can see the stars and they're um, fortunate enough to live in a place that's not completely obliterated by city lights. 
But if you know the Big, big Dipper and you can see the Big Dipper, what happens whenever you get out the this telescope and you zoom in is that you can only see part of the Big Dipper. You can't see the whole thing. And pretty soon you can lose your bearings. And this is what happens to people when they get into eschatology and end times doctrines and all kinds of other doctrines in the Bible, by the way. What happens is as you focus in, and we have a saying here in the, in the Ozarks, don't just go to seat on that. That's good, but don't go to seat on that. The same concept here. What happens when you focus in and dial in on one thing without continually checking your bearings, without continually comparing Scripture with Scripture, is that you will begin to get a distorted image of the Word of God. And next thing you know, you will have error, and error that is not corrected leads to heresy. In fact, one preacher says, and many preachers have said it, truth out of balance is heresy. God is love. Take that thing out of balance and say, God's not going to send anybody to hell. Now you're a heretic. You're lying in the face of God and his truth. And it happens that way with every doctrine of the Bible, but it seems to especially be prevalent with end times doctrines. Now here he tells us the main purpose, the final conclusion, the reason for which he brought up all of these end times doctrines. And the reasons that he gave us here are for comfort and edification of the church comfort and edifying if your end times doctrines and your teachings about them and your studies about them end in high mindedness you missed it if they end in error and heresies about god you missed it if they end in um, accusations against god by making him a liar you missed it if they end in a scared church and a bunch of people that are trembling and sitting around looking like a bunch of meerkats staring out the windows waiting on the beast to show up with his forces and stick a microchip in their forehead while they sit on seven years of moldy rations? You missed it. This is for edification and it's for comfort. Now there are some things in the Bible. We're just going to brush down over a couple of these things and then we're going to apply edification and comfort and make the application to end times um, teachings. There are a few things that God is absolutely clear about in the Bible. First Corinthians in times prophecy, first Corinthians 13 and verse 12 tells us that now we see through a glass darkly but then face to face. I hope you turned there. Um, 1 Corinthians 13. It says, For now we see through a glass darkly, but then face to face. Now I know in part, but then shall I know even as also I am known. We'll look at that glass here in just a second. Let's just get an idea here. There, There's a sequence of end times events in the Bible that is not foggy at all. You can see it with the naked eye. It's as clear as Orion. It's as clear as the Big Dipper. It shows up over and over and over and over and over again in the Bible with the same exact sequence being confirmed in typology, being confirmed in analogy, being confirmed in doctrine, being confirmed in preaching, being confirmed in teaching, and being confirmed in chronology. The sequence of events of the end times in its grand generality 
in its grand generality, we can see in the glass darkly. We can see the outline of end times events, and it's absolutely clear. We've been teaching on this for a couple of weeks now. You can go back and pick up all of that study, and there'll be many more studies on it as we go forward. Um, also, um, Pastor Reggie Kelly at Liberty Faith Church has been preaching this in my home church, and he's been, not all of this, but he's been preaching on the day of the Lord's, or not so much the day of the Lord as the millennial reign of Christ. He's been preaching on that lately, especially during um, Sunday schools. There's all kinds of um, good teaching there that you can make yourself make available to yourself on Sermon Audio and on the Facebook page of Liberty Faith Church, um, where my pastor preaches. Now, here in... Um this sequence of this sequence of events that is absolutely clear in the Bible after Jesus Christ died on the cross you have the entrance of the church age I'm not going to get into it deep and I'm not going to try and validate it we've already done that I'm just going to give it to you church age followed by the catching away of the church some people call and legitimately for legitimate reasons though not biblically the rapture of the church the catching away of the church the church age followed by the catching away of the church followed by the great tribulation followed by the return of Jesus Christ with his saints from glory with flaming fire taking vengeance on them that know not God followed by the millennial reign of Christ for a thousand literal years on the throne of David in literal Jerusalem followed by the final judgment of the world and Satan that sequence of events is so clear throughout the Bible that it cannot be missed. Now, as your Bible says here in 1 Corinthians 13, when I was a child, I spake as a child, I understood as a child, I thought as a child, but when I became a man, I put away childish things. Now, when I was a very little child, I could not see the Big Dipper. And for myself, I had a real problem with it because I wanted to see it. But no matter how many times people told me it's over by that star, I just couldn't pick it out. Maybe that was partly because whenever I was that age, we were living way out in the country and at nighttime the stars were plentiful bountiful and thick as a carpet stars absolutely everywhere sometimes it's easier for children to see the big dipper in a place with a little more city glow because it's all you can see and it's pretty obvious which stars being pointed at but when you can see about a hundred thousand stars it's kind of hard to tell which one of the thousand that are around your daddy's finger are the one he's pointing at especially for a little bitty child. So I had a hard time finding the Big Dipper, but when I found it, I knew I'd found it. And once I found it, you could not convince me that it wasn't there or that I hadn't seen it, no matter how much you struggle to find it. And I'm going to have to say this with all the love and Christian humility that I can gather in my heart. If you can't see that sequence of events in the Bible, then maybe you need some help seeing it and you need to help you need to go back to God again and look. But once you see it, nobody can take it from you and you can't take it from me just because you don't see it. Just because you don't see the clear constellation of end time sequence of events in the Bible doesn't mean that I don't, and it doesn't mean that I can't. It's very clear in the Bible. Many things obscured, as we've already talked about. Um, also, I will say this. I didn't really see it. I didn't really care to see it. I didn't really, it didn't bother me till I was preaching 
and I had to preach through passages of Scripture that dealt with it, and suddenly I was faced with a whole bunch of conflicting opinions from a whole bunch of different people and a bunch of question marks in my own mind, and I went to God, and I got my Bible, and I didn't pull out the books, and I didn't go to YouTube. I got my Bible, and I asked God to show me, and I read straight through my Bible, asking God to show me, and I kept reading, and God kept on showing me, and kept on showing me, and kept on showing me as I read my Bible, just reading it through in order. And in those days, by the way, I was reading straight through Genesis through Revelation. I was um, not doing old in the morning, new in the evening. I was just reading straight through the Bible. But I was reading the Bible so much at that point in my life that I could read through the Old Testament and the New Testament um, often enough to not feel the lack of the New Testament. That's not bragging. It's just a reality. And in that time of soaking myself deeply in the Word of God and seeking His face on many different topics, including in times, this constellation suddenly popped out. All of a sudden, I could see the Big Dipper. I could see the sequence of events all over the Bible. And ever since then, I've been convinced of it, and I will be convinced of it. So help me, God, as long as I have a lucid mind, an understanding mind to think with. Now, this sequence of events is all through the Bible. It's clear in the Bible. Another thing that's absolutely clear in the Bible that ties in with the church age is the place of the Gentile bride as distinct and separate from Israel. This is not a foggy doctrine. It is absolutely clear. It is absolutely, undeniably, without reproach, clear that Israel and the church are not the same entity, that there is a nation of Israel that is a physical nation that a physical promise from God applies to, and there is a literal Gentile church that God has given spiritual privilege to, and it is equally clear that whenever Jesus Christ comes back for his bride, the church, the Gentile bride, and all the those Jews that have trusted Christ as their Lord and Savior, and they're caught up to meet the Lord in the air, that God will restore spiritual privilege to Israel, and God's people will have God's promises back again as Israelites born of the literal seed of Abraham. There are no lost tribes. There are 12 tribes of Israel and God's economy, and they don't line up like we would, by the way. Read about them in Revelation if you want. It's interesting. Now, We've got to get on to this comfort and edifying. I stated those because those facts because these things allow us to understand comfort and edification in end times doctrine. Let's look at it. So first of all, the primary purpose in end times doctrine and teaching in the Bible, and especially here in Thessalonians, 1 Thessalonians, is the comfort and edification of the church. The first of those is comfort. So let's look at the comfort of God in the doctrine of the resurrection. Go to 1 Corinthians 15, just a couple pages over from where we were. Here at the end of this page, it says, so when this when this corruptible, verse 54, shall have put on incorruption, and this mortal shall have put on immortality, then shall be brought to pass the saying that is written, Death is swallowed up in victory. O death, where is thy sting? O grave, where is thy victory? The sting of death is sin, and the strength of sin is the law. But thanks be to God, which giveth us the victory through our Lord Jesus Christ. Therefore, my beloved brethren, be ye steadfast, unmovable, always abounding in the work of the Lord, for 
inasmuch as you know that your labor is not in vain in the Lord. Here he says, the sting of death is sin and the strength of sin is the law, but thanks be to God, which giveth us the victory through our Lord Jesus Christ. This is the comfort of God in resurrection doctrine. This here is, is, it's like the difference between Ecclesiastes and Philippians. My wife was asking me the other day, um, what's the point of Ecclesiastes? By the time you get done reading it, it's all depression, and it seems like there's no reason to even live. And, and she says, if I didn't know the New Testament and Christ, I would be so depressed when I finished Ecclesiastes. And I told her that's exactly why God put it in the Bible to make everything in this world fall into its proper place so that the light of the glorious gospel of Jesus Christ can shine brightly and fully even in the midst of all the distracting shiny objects this world has to offer. Ecclesiastes takes away all of that and lets Christ shine. In the same way, the resurrection doctrine brings comfort because there's more to life than just this life. If this is all there is, there's nothing. Just like Ecclesiastes said, the resurrection doctrine brings the comfort of a reality beyond this life. Go to 1 Thessalonians 4.13. 1 Thessalonians, um, where, we're, where our main text is, chapter 4 and verse 13. But I would not have you to be ignorant, brethren, concerning them which are asleep, that ye sorrow not, even as others which have no hope. So not only is there comfort in looking past the vanity of this life in the resurrection, but there's also comfort whenever your loved one dies to know that they're with God and that their body will be raised from the grave. And even though the smell of death is on them, and even though they're buried under dirt in a box, even though it looks like there's no hope, even though the worms are eating their flesh, even though it looks like all hope is lost, their body will rise from the dead. And that is hope. And that is comfort. That means you don't need to sorrow as others who have no hope. So the comfort of the resurrection doctrine, then we'll look at the comfort of rapture doctrine, the catching away of the church down here in first Thessalonians four, for the Lord himself shall descend verse 15 for this. We say unto you by the word of the Lord, that we, which are alive and remain unto the coming of the Lord shall not prevent them, which are asleep for the Lord himself shall descend from heaven with a shout and with the voice of the archangel and the dead in Christ shall rise first. Then we, which are alive and remain shall be caught up together with them in the clouds to meet the Lord in the airs. And so shall we ever be with the Lord. Wherefore comfort one another with these words, the rat, the comfort of the doctrine of the catching away. (coughs) This is not escapism, but it is escapism. It's not the way that people say it, but it is. The difference is that all you people out there that don't believe in any kind of rapture have nothing to look forward to, but death. And those of you that think that the rapture isn't come until you're emaciated and mostly starved and you look like a wet rat that just got out of a leper colony and just washed up on the shore and then the heavens open and here comes Christ to save you. The difference here is that with the catching away of the church, physical death and suffering are not what we are looking for for comfort, but rather we're looking for Christ's 
coming. We have here the comfort of the assurance of Christ's love and care that we are not appointed to wrath, that he is our heavenly bridegroom. He loves us. He's taking care of us and he will not suffer the soul of his righteous ones to famish. He's going to take care of us. I have been young and now I am old. Yet have I not seen the righteous forsaken nor his seed begging bread, the Bible says. These promises have reality if you believe the catching away of the church that is preached by God in the word of God. This We'll look at this rapture doctrine and its edification here in just a moment. The comfort of Christ now we'll notice here in the coming of Christ and the day of the Lord. Now this, the relationship of the church to the Jews here is absolutely important. If God divorced Israel, you can be divorced. Go to Isaiah chapter 50. Go to Isaiah chapter 50. This is why in Romans, Paul said, If God spared not the natural branches, be not high-minded, but fear, lest he also spare not thee. It's absolutely ironic to me that amongst the most extreme believers in the doctrine of the sovereignty of God, who believe it to the exclusion of all the clear scriptures about the responsibility of man and refuse to balance it, that the adherence to extreme predestination doctrines almost without fail believe in the replacement of Israel with the church and they do not believe in God's sovereignty or election of Israel one iota instead they believe in the free will of Israel to lose their salvation it's a complete irony it's a complete opposition it's 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 so ludicrous it's frustrating what they believe God has given them they don't believe one minute God gave to the Jews somehow God gave the Jews the right to choose to disobey but God didn't give it to them and God gave the Jews a salvation that wasn't eternal wasn't sovereign wasn't predestinated and wasn't elected but then he gave them that even though all of the scriptures that preach and teach on the doctrine of predestination and election primarily deal with with Israel first if you go through the Old Testament and then on into the New. Predestination is a doctrine that was first preached to the Jew. Here in Isaiah chapter 50, thus saith the Lord, where is the bill of your mother's divorcement whom I have put away? Well, that, sound, that settles it. God divorced Israel. He says, or which of my creditors is it to whom I have sold you? Behold your iniquities, for your iniquities have ye sold yourselves and your transgression is transgressions and for your transgressions is your mother put away now go on to Isaiah 54 we could read all of this it all applies and it's all the same section of scripture he gets to Isaiah 54 sing O barren thou that didst not bear break forth into singing and cry aloud thou that didst not travail with child for more are the children of the desolate than the children of the married wife saith the Lord enlarge the place of thy tent and let them stretch forth the curtains of thine habitations Spare not, lengthen thy cords, and strengthen thy stakes, for thou shalt break forth on the right hand and on the left, and thy seed shall inherit the Gentiles and make the desolate cities to be inhabited. This absolutely denies any possibility of the Gentiles having spiritual privilege because the seed of the Israelites will inherit the Gentiles and make the desolate cities to be inhabited. The Israelites, physical Israelites, the Jews, are going to rule the world. 
Fear not, for thou shalt not be ashamed, neither be thou confounded, for thou shalt not be put to shame, for thou shalt forget the shame of thy youth, get this, and shalt not remember the reproach of thy widowhood anymore, for thy maker is thine husband. Didn't he say he put her away? Thy maker is thine husband, the Lord of hosts is his name. Oh, that's the church he's talking about. Wait, wait, before you go lying on God, let's finish the text. And thy redeemer, the Holy One of Israel, the God of the whole earth, shall he be called. For the Lord hath called thee as a woman forsaken and grieved in spirit, and a wife of youth when thou wast refused, saith God. God saying, I'm calling you like one that has been divorced and is being brought back. It says, for a small moment have I forsaken thee, but with great mercies will I gather thee. The Bible says that they that, that he that marries her that is divorced committeth adultery. If God went out and married her that was divorced, then he would commit adultery. He says, and if you marry someone and divorce them, marry someone else, you can't go back to the first one. Read the book of Hosea. God says he's going back to Israel even though she married another. Even though she left Christ for a false husband, even though she was unfaithful, he says, I'm going to gather you. Look at what he says in verse eight. In a little wrath, I hid my face from thee for a moment. That's the great tribulation. Be about seven years. The... Um, the little, the culmination of it, about seven years. But with everlasting kindness will I have mercy on thee, saith the Lord thy Redeemer. Get this right here. For this is as the waters of Noah unto me, for as I have sworn that the waters of Noah should no more go over the earth, so have I sworn that I would not be wroth with thee, nor rebuke thee, for the mountains shall depart, and the hills be removed, but my kindness shall not depart from thee, neither shall the covenant of my peace be removed, saith the Lord that hath mercy on thee. Did you hear God? As sure as God has promised to not flood the earth globally again, as sure as the mountains are standing, as sure as the waters of Noah, God will have mercy on Israel. Go to Jeremiah 31. Jeremiah 31. Again, you can apply these things to whatever you want. You can you could say Israel's the Mohammedans. What gives you the right to say that you're the Israelites? I meet people all the time that say that they're the Israelites. What gives you the right? Did you know the Mormons say they're Israelites too? They think they're the 10 lost tribes. There's some people out there that um, they're this Hebrew roots group and they think they're the lost tribes of Israel. What gives you the right to claim that you're the lost tribe? There are no lost tribes. God knows where Israel is. God's not a man that he should lie, neither the son of man that he should repent. God knows what he's doing. And Jesus said he's never lost one of his sheep. And he's not going to. Jeremiah chapter 31 You say, what does this have to do with anything? Just hold on. We'll get there. Jeremiah 31, at the same time, saith the Lord, will I be the God of all the families of Israel and they shall be my people. All the families of Israel and they shall be my people. The same books, by the way, Isaiah and Jeremiah prophesy about the Gentile church separately and call them Gentiles, by the way. 
He says, Thus saith the Lord, the people which were left of the sword found grace in the wilderness, even Israel, when I went to cause him to rest. The Lord hath appeared of old unto me, saying, Yea, I have loved thee with an everlasting love. Therefore, with loving kindness have I drawn thee. Again, I will build thee, and thou shalt be built, O virgin of Israel. Thou shalt be adorned with thy tabret. She goes on with Ephraim. He goes on with more about Zion. He goes on with uh, more about Ephraim and Israel and Ephraim and Israel all through this chapter. And you get down to verse 35. Thus saith the Lord, which giveth the sun for a light by day and the ordinances of the moon and of the stars for a light by night, which divideth the sea when the waves thereof roar. The Lord of hosts is his name. If those ordinances depart from before me, saith the Lord, then the seed of Israel shall also shall cease from being a nation, not a church, a nation before me forever. <coughs> Thus saith the Lord, if heaven above can be measured and the foundations of the earth searched out beneath, I will also cast off all the seed of Israel for all that they have done, saith the Lord. Oh, they deserve it, but God won't do it. What's that called? Sovereign predestinated grace by election. That's what that's called. And God gave it to Israel. You say, why are you hammering on this? Can't we just all get along? Not on this one. We can't because this one's clear. And if you pervert this teaching, you make God a liar. Look up and see. Is the sun still in the sky? Have they measured the entire breadth of the heavens? Have they searched every inch of the inner part of the earth? If none of those have changed, then God will still have mercy on Israel. God said he loves them with an everlasting love. What did he promise the Gentile church? Everlasting life. If God's everlasting love for Israel can fail, his everlasting love for the church will fail. If he's not true to Israel, he won't be true to you. It's nothing but spiritual pride that takes this and replaces Israel with the church. What a mess that is. Spiritual privilege has gone to the church, and he's made of one, both Jew and Gentile, during this church age, those that call upon him, but yet the nation of Israel, the physical nation of the Jews, still holds a special place in God's heart, and he will restore that nation. And it will be Israel, not America, that rules over the world. Israel will. Not China, not Russia, Israel will is going to rule over the world with Jesus Christ sitting on the throne of David, extending his power of his rod of iron and crushing in pieces his enemies like the potter's vessel. <clears throat> now, what's the big deal about all this? Because the day of the Lord deals with the restoration of Israel. Everything that we've read about here in Thessalonians about the times and the seasons and the day of the Lord so cometh as a thief in the night, peace and safety, sudden destruction, all of this stuff deals with the restoration of Israel. And if you don't understand God's purpose and plan for the restoration of Israel, there is no comfort in the day of the Lord. What is the purpose of the day of the Lord? Without Israel, there is no purpose for it. And all the prophecies of God about the day of the Lord mean nothing. Absolutely nothing. Why would there be a great tribulation? The stated purpose of which is to bring Israel to repentance and to show the world that God keeps his promise to Israel. 
Why would there be a great tribulation? Why would there be a temple? Why would there be a beast? None of it makes any sense. So now you have to come up with all kinds of weird doctrines and make yourself Israel and make yourself going through the tribulation and then you lose the whole sight and all the comfort. It's gone. The comfort's gone. Israel, listen to me, understanding Israel's place is a key to comfort. If you don't understand God's faithfulness to Israel, then you've got to be some kind of spiritual hotshot to think you're going to make it because you think you can do better than Israel did. You think you Gentile dogs like me, that we can do better than Israel did. It's a lie. We don't do a half of as good as they do. We we muddle our way through the whole thing. The only reason we do anything at all as a Gentile church is because we have the fullness of the Holy Spirit of God. They didn't have that. Until Pentecost, the Holy Spirit was not given. And what Israel did without the fullness of the Spirit of God, we as the Gentile church struggle to do with the fullness of the Holy Spirit of God. The restoration of the Jew is absolutely critical to getting comfort from end times doctrine. It assures us of the promises of God. It lets us look forward to the wedding of the Lamb in Revelation 19 and the final judgment of the enemies of God, Satan and his followers. The comfort that comes from understanding God's purpose for Israel comes also allows you to understand that the Gentile bride is going to a marriage supper, and that's joyful expectation. Now, in Mongolia, this missionary book that I was reading, uh, the old custom in Mongolia, a bride, whenever she was, when, the, when they came to take her to go to her bridegroom, in custom, she had to weep and wail, wail and holler and cry the whole time and make a big ado. And that's some people's end times doctrine. They think that we're going to God like Mongolian brides, weeping and wailing and howling, burnt and scorched and stung by scorpion tails of locusts and drinking blood from the water because we're worthy of drinking blood because we're the bride. And Jesus loves us so much. He's going to beat us. He's going to whip us. He's going to kick us. He's going to wipe his feet with us. He's going to burn us. He's going to scorch us with heat. And then finally, he's going to rescue his darling bride what a bunch of mess what a bunch of tripe what a what a absolutely perverted doctrine that is if you understand the purpose of israel the purpose of the church the gentile bride the marriage supper of the lamb you have a joyful expectation when you think of the end times that's god's purpose now a lot of people out there say you're just an escapist that's why you're not depressed like we are that's why you don't sit up looking like a meerkat that's had five cups of espresso all night long watching youtube videos about the latest conspiracy about e currency what's your point i have a joyful expectation when i think of the end times no fear no fear no worry because i'm right with god my heart is washed clean and pure i'm ready to go and God's going to take me out of here to the marriage supper of the Lamb. It's a joyful expectation. Don't you hope that the day that you get married, you'll be happy about it? Do you want to go wailing and crying and howling to the marriage altar to marry someone? Boy, I hope that's not how it works out for you. Now, the second purpose given here is edification. The first is comfort. The second is edification. Edification is a fancy word that could be applied to a mother bird pushing its young out of the nest so that they will fly. 
It helps. Edification is helping you get the air under your wings, helping you move, helping you do what you're called to do. That little bird sitting in that nest, oh, he's afraid of everything. He's trembling about everything. Though It's so far down to the ground. He doesn't know he can fly. He's got the feathers. He's got the wings. He's got the super ultra light aluminum airframe. He's built by God, ready to fly, but he doesn't know it. Edification pushes him out of the nest, and in his desperation, he lets out a squawk and when he squawks he thrusts out his wings to get a better squawk and his fear and the wind catches under his wings and all of a sudden he's soaring and he's flying and then he's singing a happy bird song instead of squawking and this is what God wants in times doctrine to do for you God wants in times doctrine when you to push you out of your nest he wants it to let the wind come under your wings he wants it to lift you with joy so that instead of squawking you're singing That's the purpose of this stuff. That's what God says the purpose is of it. All this doomsday theology needs to go in the trash can. It's not from God. Confusion and fear are from the devil. The Bible says God has not given us a spirit of fear, but of power and of love and of soundness of mind. Praise the Lord. The edification of resurrection doctrine. Number one, you will stand before God. Go to 1 Corinthians 3. You and I will all stand before God. The um, warning to the lost, obviously, is they're going to stand before God and be cast into the lake of fire. That's not edifying in that sense because that's just terrifying for them. But the edification comes that we see that warning to the lost that our loved ones are going to be cast in the lake of fire, and that motivates us to move. Also, in 1 Corinthians 3, it speaks of the judgment of the saved. And this is a different judgment than the judgment of the lost. But here in 3.13, every man's work shall be made manifest, for the day shall declare it, because it shall be revealed by fire, and the fire shall try every man's work of what sort it is. If any man's work abide which he hath built thereupon he shall receive a reward if any man's work shall be burned he shall suffer loss but he himself shall be saved yet so as by fire know ye not that ye are the temple of God and that the spirit of God dwelleth in you if any man defile the temple of God him shall God destroy for the temple of God is holy which no which temple ye are the doctrine of the resurrection is edification to the church because it gives us the reality that we will stand before God and give account for what we have done in this life. And the motivation then is get right with God. Stop building with wood and hay and stubble and start building with gold and silver and precious stones. Secondly, the edification of the catching away, the rapture doctrine in the Bible. Matthew chapter 5 and verse 24, Seek ye first the kingdom of God and his righteousness, and all these things shall be added unto you. It actually starts here with no man can serve two masters. I think I got the wrong chapter, Matthew 6, 24. Yes, 624. No man can serve two masters, for either he will hate the one and love the other, or he will hold to the one and despise the other. Ye cannot serve God and mammon. Therefore I say unto you, take no thought for your life what ye shall eat or what ye shall drink, nor yet for your body what ye shall put on. Is not the life more than meat and the body than raiment? Behold the fowls of the air, for they sow not, neither do they reap, nor gather into barns, yet your heavenly Father feedeth them. Are ye not much better than they? Which of you by taking thought 
thought can add one cubit unto his stature? And why take ye thought for raiment? Consider the lilies of the field, how they grow. They toil not, neither do they spin. I was just thinking about lilies all dolled up in ripstop with seven years of rations and ready bags and AK-47s. They don't really look like that when you look at lilies, do they? Behold also the lilies how they of the field, how they grow. They toil not, neither do they spin. And yet I say unto you that even Solomon in all his glory was not arrayed like one of these. Wherefore, if God so clothed the grass of the field, which today is, and tomorrow is cast into the oven, how much shall he not much more clothe you, O ye of little faith? O ye of little faith? It's, it's just funny to even think about. Imagine, uh, imagine somebody decked out in a flak jacket, full camo, BDUs, canteen hand grenades, landmines, a bag full of rations, a uh, fully automatic machine gun, night vision, a helmet, goggles, and he jumps over a wall and lands on the other side, and there's a poor lost sinner standing there that goes, ah, what are you doing here? He says, I'm surviving the end times. I'm a Christian waiting on Jesus to come back. Get out of my way before I blow your head off. That is not what Christ taught us to be. But that's the attitude a lot of people get when they get false doctrine mixed in with their eschatology and they stop looking for Christ's coming. The liberating reality of the catching away of the church is God says, I've got your back. You go full speed, advance into the kingdom of, advance into the kingdom of the devil, lead captivity captive like I did in my name. All power is given unto me. Go ye therefore and preach the gospel. I've got this. I'll take care of you. I'll make sure you've got what you need. You just go. Be willing to suffer. Be willing to die if that's what it takes. But take my gospel to this lost and dying world. It says, wherefore, if God so clothed the grass of the field, which today is and tomorrow is cast into the oven, shall he not much more clothe you, O ye of little faith? Therefore take no thought, saying, What shall we eat, or what shall we drink? Wherewithal shall we be clothed? Or wherewithal shall we be clothed? For after all these things do the Gentiles seek. Boy, he nailed us, didn't he? The Gentile church as well. For your heavenly Father knoweth that ye have need of all these things, but seek ye first the kingdom of God and his righteousness, and all these things shall be added unto you. Take therefore no thought for the morrow, for the morrow shall take thought for the things of itself. Sufficient unto the day is the evil thereof. The edification of rapture doctrine, of good old-fashioned rapture of the church doctrine, catching away, is that the rapture of the church motivates us to seek first the kingdom of God, knowing that God is going to take care of us. And we can sell out for Christ and preach the gospel at the gates of hell with the beast about to be revealed and we don't have to hide and we don't have to worry and we don't have to be afraid because God's got this. He's got it under control. The edification of the rapture doctrine also brings us to a joyful looking for of the bridegroom. In Ephesians chapter 5, we don't have to turn there right now. He's going to present to himself a bride without spot or wrinkle. Some people say the tribulation is purification for the bride. That doctrine is not in the Bible. When you read what God says about his bride, he will present her to him without spot or wrinkle. Read Song of Solomon. Thou art all fair, my love. There is no spot in thee. God doesn't have to burn his church to make her holy. That's a bunch of asceticism trash. That's a mess. 
Good grief. Whoever heard of such a courtship? I'm going to burn you with fire and make you drink blood. What a mess. That's not what God's doing. So what's the edification effect of this rapture doctrine? The preparation of your trousseau. The, the preparation of your household apparatus, because God's preparing a mansion for you. It's time for you to start making that wedding quilt. It's time for you to get some of those hand towels ready. It's time for you to get some of those things gathered up that you're going to need. It's time for you to start collecting some dinnerware. It's time for you to start getting your bags packed for heaven, laying up reward in heaven, laying up treasure in heaven, not on earth where moth and rust doth corrupt and thieves break through and steal for where your treasure is there will your heart be also. So the edification of the rapture doctrine to the church is the preparation of the trousseau, the preparation of the bridal accoutrements, the preparation of the bridal kit, of the luggage that is going to be taken with you. And you're not taking even the shirt off your back with you in the rapture, but you will take those things that you've done for Christ. And you'll receive for those things that you've done reward in heaven. Hallelujah. Um, here, edification of Christ's coming and the day of the Lord. The third aspect that we've looked at with the comfort. Now we look at this third aspect, the coming of the Lord in the area of edification. Go back to 1 Corinthians chapter 3 and verse 15. If any man's work shall be burned, he shall suffer loss, but he himself shall be saved, yet so as by fire. The coming of God to judge the world world points us to the wrath of God and the judgment of God. The fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom and of knowledge. The Bible is full of texts about the wrath of God. We recently looked at many of those texts about the wrath of God. We're not going to run down through them right now, but the wrath of God teaches the fear of God and by the fear of the Lord men depart from evil. Why don't the churches in our day obey God? Because they don't fear God. Why do they allow sin constantly in every part of life because they do not fear God. If you fear God, you will not sin. To the degree that you fear God, you will not sin. To the degree that you love God, you will not sin. Our sins prove a lack of love and a lack of fear. Go to James chapter 5. Also, edification of Christ's coming for the church is the inducement to work because the night is coming and and the night comes when no man can work. The edification of the church is that God's wrath on this lost and dying world gives us a tender heart towards the wicked who will be judged and a willingness to forgive them. Go to now, ye rich men, says James chapter 5 and verse 1. Weep and howl for your miseries that shall come upon you. Your riches are corrupted and your garments are moth-eaten. Your gold and silver is cankered and the rest of them shall be a witness against you and shall eat your flesh as it were fire. Ye have heaped treasure together for the last days. Behold the hire of the laborers who have reaped down your fields, which is of you kept back by fraud, crieth. And the cries of them which have reaped are entered into the ears of the Lord of Sabaoth. Ye have lived in pleasure on the earth and become and been wanton. Ye have nourished your hearts as in a day of slaughter. Ye have condemned and killed the just, and he doth not resist you. Look at verse 7. Be patient, therefore, brethren, unto the coming of the Lord. This was all given as an inducement to the church to be patient unto the coming of the Lord. 
that bad things are going to happen and people are going to mistreat you. People are going to persecute you. You will have tribulation in this world. Fear not, I have overcome the world, Jesus said. Be patient, therefore, brethren, says James in chapter 5, verse 7, unto the coming of the Lord. Be patient. Be patient for what? Be patient for vengeance. Be patient for justice. Be patient. Don't try and exact revenge on the people that have hurt you. Just have mercy on them because they have a judgment coming. The day of the Lord and the wrath of the Lamb, the Almighty pouring out the seven vials of His wrath upon this earth should induce us to great lengths of mercy and long-suffering towards this lost and dying world. He says, Behold, the husbandman waiteth for the precious fruit of the earth and hath long patience for it until he received the early and latter rain. Be ye also patient. Establish your hearts for the coming of the Lord draweth nigh. Now, be patient, therefore, brethren, for the Lord's coming to pour out his vials of wrath upon you. He's going to open the pit and turn loose the locusts and they're going to sting you and the water's going to be turned to blood. There's not going to be anything to eat. Most of the world's going to be burnt up with fire. What isn't burned is going to be scorched with heat. You're barely going to survive. You won't be allowed to preach. You won't be allowed to leave. You won't be allowed to move. You won't be allowed to buy or sell. You're going to have to hide in a hole and in a cave. That's none of what we are exhorted to do by God. None of the exhortations in the whole Bible have anything to do with that for the Christian. He says, be be also patient. Establish your hearts for the coming of the Lord draweth nigh. Be patient because they are going to be judged when the Lord comes. He didn't say you are going to be judged. They are. Be patient. You can wait. It'll be all right. Matthew 5.34 says, Take no thought for the morrow. This edification of Christ's coming is a heart that is looking for Christ's return rather than looking to world events. By the way, world events is made up of two words. And if you're looking at world events, the first word in that is what your focus is on. And what is the first word? world. So what is your whole life about? What what is your passion? What is your time spent on if you're focused on world events? The world. Love not the world. Neither the things, oh, I hate the world. That's why I watch it. No, you love it. That's why you can't get enough of it. And you won't get your Bible out and read it. All you do is sit in front of your stupid TV, YouTube, and news stations, and you won't get back in your Bible because you love this stinking world. Love not the world, neither the things that are in the world. James 4 and verse 13, For all my dearly beloved brothers and sisters in Christ who have gone into the error and the snare of the wicked regarding end times theology and are prepping and hiding instead of preaching and sharing the gospel of Jesus Christ. The Bible says in James 4 and 13, Go to now ye that say today or tomorrow we will go into such a city and continue there a year and buy and sell and get gain. But you're going to continue. Seven? Come on. Verse 14, whereas ye know not what shall be on the morrow, for what is your life? It is even a vapor that appeareth for a little time and then vanisheth away. For that ye ought to say, if the Lord will, we shall live and do this or that. But now ye rejoice in your boastings, all such rejoicing is evil. And get this right here, and then we'll close right here with this. Therefore to him that knoweth to do good and doeth it not to him, it is sin. Go ye therefore and preach the gospel.
Father, in Jesus' name, please use this message and help us to get our priorities right. Help us to get our minds right. Help us to get the comfort and the edification that you would have us to have from your end times doctrine that you've put in the Bible. Help us to be humble enough, Lord, to not lose track of the basic truths that you've put in your word and to think that we're so smart, Lord, that we've figured everything out and in the process we become fools and we miss the basic and become lost in our own complicated theology. Lord, help me and keep me from this, Lord. Lord, I'm I'm just as susceptible to this error as anyone else is. We need your help and your gentle correction, and we thank you that we have the promise of it for you chasing every son who you love. We love you, Lord, in Jesus' name. Amen.